Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, Mattachinos! Heads up, this episode has a few brief mentions of sexual violence just in the first act of the episode. Also, this podcast uses text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show has identifying terms that may now be out of date. And while you're listening, check out the show on Instagram at Queer Serial to put faces to the names and see real events covered in the story. Here we go. Eventually, like other civil rights groups, the picketers took up posts outside the White House. 
which drew a not unexpected reaction from a sightseer from West Virginia. Well, I'm a, I'm a country boy, I guess, because I couldn't believe this. I mean, I didn't know this was a problem over here, or at least I didn't think anybody would have a sign out about it. But I just don't understand. It's kind of weird. I mean, uh, you people are getting uh, much more cosmopolitan than I thought you were over here, because this is really something. See, let's face it, homosexuality is a problem, and uh, these people are really advocating that we don't solve the problem. They're advocating that we tolerate the problem. And I think these people are a fit subject for a mental health program. These people need help. Think they ought to be? I think. I mean, I'm sorry. As, as I say again, I'm qualifying all this that I'm a poor country boy from West Virginia, and this is amazing to me. July 4th. 1966. Homosexual groups around the country feel the same way, and they're willing to stand up and be counted on the issue. Nonetheless, even though we live in an age of protest and demonstrations, this picket line in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia on July 4th was met with a degree of disbelief. It was a combined demonstration by various homosexual organizations intent upon raising a cry for their own civil rights. Their chief complaint? That their members are discriminated against, especially by the government. Homophiles march in a circle at the second annual reminder. Men in suits, ladies in dresses, in 103 degree heat. Frank Kameny speaks to reporters from CBS. Every American citizen has the right to be considered by his government on the basis of his own personal merits as an individual. Certainly some homosexuals are poor risks. This is no possible excuse for penalizing all homosexuals. It's quiet, peaceful, tourists watch a bit and pass by, but the summer is still heating up. And while protesting quietly has proven to be helpful in spreading our message, it will not curb the growing violence of the police. Previously, we can call it the annual reminder. The reminder that a group of Americans still don't have their basic rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It began with the arrest by white officers of the California Highway Patrol of two young Negroes. The story of police brutality quickly spread through the community. Sheriff Clark in Selma, Alabama. Something awful must have happened to a human being to be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breast. The police also appoint a liaison to the gay community. Letters come through constantly for Elliot Blackstone. He works closely with the Mattachine, DOB, and the CRH. He works inside the police department to change policies against queer people. Blackstone was the exception to the rule. And what DOB's participation would amount to is tacit support of the Mattachine program. We would prefer to hold DOB's identity as a separate organization. Phyllis and I find ourselves moving in a direction that no longer encompasses DOB, and we have become more involved with CRH and Citizens Alert. Some readers want the writing to focus solely on women's issues, not gay issues in general. 
Barbara and Kay are also dedicating so much time to picketing and other demonstrations that some ladder issues aren't being put together on time. Barbara and Kay will be let go from the ladder. May God bless you for your courage so that other people may more clearly understand our problem. Christine Jorgensen tells her doctors in Copenhagen she needs as much good publicity as possible for the sake of all those to whom I am a representation of themselves. Indeed, Christine, without you, probably none of this would have happened. Can I be of assistance? Most sincerely and earnestly yours, Harry Benjamin, MD. The daughters of Belitis heard two psychologists take issue yesterday with the prevailing medical view that homosexuality is a disease. The vote seemed to represent a clear mandate for our views and a clear defeat for the Cory Sicknicks. Emphasis on research has had its day. I think we have to decide how far we can go for caring about what heterosexuals think. This doesn't mean that all of our goals are defined by other people's filthy minds. Dear Mother, I don't think that you made me as I am in this context. Remember also that I have been telling you that you have never seen the real me. If you did make me as I am, I thank you for it. The Mafia runs the East Coast bars, and the profits are huge, so long as queers need protection from cops and the spaces they create are not at all safe. Nationwide ring preying on prominent deviates. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is the serialized story of queer liberation in America, from the beginning to Stonewall. Two weeks after the second annual reminder picket, in San Francisco's Tenderloin, signs are carried around the block of Turk and Taylor. A new organization of activists is furious. The Tenderloin is home, and they're fighting to keep it. Transgender women are picked up by cops all over the city, but they often come to find safety in numbers in the Tenderloin. Many girls lose their jobs and their housing when they can't totally pass as female, and they come to find that the Tenderloin's cheap residential hotels down Turk Street are their only option. To support themselves, survival sex work is common. Nighttime bar patrons and tourists looking for some fun, and even downtown office workers in need of a lunch break massage, they all have the convenience of tenderloin residents to take care of their needs. But it's very dangerous work. There's a serial killer out there, abducting trans women, slitting their throats and mutilating their genitals, leaving their bodies in alleys. Sex workers carry weapons in their bags just in case. But this is the only work many of them can find in order to survive. Historian Susan Stryker has pointed out that the residents of the Tenderloin in 1966 can't afford to leave. Stryker writes that they are in an involuntary containment zone or ghetto for transgender women. Out on the streets, cops come through to arrest trans women for prostitution even if it's just because the women are out wearing what cops perceive as clothing for the opposite sex. Women are forced into the patrol car, sometimes driven around for hours, sometimes forced to give the officer oral sex. In jail, they're strip-searched, often forced to shave their heads, put in solitary for months, humiliated by other prisoners, who are men. Trans women are put in the men's jail, sometimes becoming victims of assault, rape, or murder. Of all the Tenderloin residents, many immigrants, queers, convicts, sex workers, heroin users, and alcoholics, out of everyone, 
cops treat the street queens the worst because they're the least capable of complaining about mistreatment. Who would listen? After long nights of work or going out with friends, the street queens, the trans women, the young runaway gay kids, the drag queens and hustlers and slummers often congregate at Compton's cafeteria. The bars typically won't let them in. But the Turk and Taylor restaurant, owned by Jean Compton since the 1940s, is open 24 hours. The girls hang out, share a meal, have a coffee. Some of these tenderloin women have become patients of Harry Benjamin, Christine Jorgensen's doctor. He just published his book, The Transsexual Phenomenon, covering 17 years of work with transsexuals and his friendship with Magnus Hirschfeld. These women know that Dr. Benjamin supports their identities, unlike quacks like Dr. Irving Bieber making his living publishing books about how sick we all are. Dr. Harry Benjamin has made the case that doctors have a responsibility to help transsexuals. The Compton's cafeteria staff doesn't care. They're getting annoyed with these folks, lingering in the restaurant and spending little money, hanging around just drinking coffee. So the staff calls the cops more and more frequently, who, of course, come in and make arrests. Compton starts a service fee of 25 cents for everyone at the door. They hire Pinkerton security guards to keep the street queens out or push around any customers not drinking their coffee fast enough. Glide Memorial, one of the churches responsible for hosting the California Hall New Year's Ball, they sponsor a new organization called Vanguard, and they organize a picket of Compton's cafeteria. The demonstration airs on ABC, but very little changes at Compton's. By the next month, things are pretty much the same again. The street queens hustle in the hot summer night and meet up in the restaurant in the evening with friends. And late on an August night, the exact date remains unknown, an officer comes in to clear the lingering crowd. He approaches a trans woman at her table, grabs her by the arm, and pulls her out of her seat. Hey! Come on, faggot, you're under arrest. She grabs her hot coffee and throws it in his face. Get off me, pig! Compton's cafeteria erupts. Plates, cups, and silverware fly through the air toward incoming officers. Quickly behind the dishes comes the furniture. The cops run outside. We are now closed for the night. Get out! Patrons shatter the plate glass windows. The fight pours out into the street where street queens beat down the officers with handbags and heels. They break the windows of a patrol car and a newsstand is set ablaze, burning all the way to the ground. Cops force queens into a paddy wagon as dozens of others escape throughout the tenderloin into the night. The next night, another picket follows. Compton's installs new windows and refuses to allow trans women or street hustlers back in. So again, they shatter the cafeteria's windows. The riot is not covered by the mainstream press. They have no interest in those transsexuals and the tenderloin. But the new organization, Vanguard, starts a magazine to report on these issues. It's full of psychedelic drawings. 
Vanguard announces... Tonight a clean sweep will be made on Market Street. Not by the police, but by the street people who are often the object of police harassment. The drug addicts, pillheads, teenage hustlers, lesbians, and homosexuals who make San Francisco's meat rack their home are tired of living in the midst of the filth thrown out onto the sidewalks and into the streets by nearby businessmen. This vanguard demonstration indicates the willingness of society's outcasts to work openly for the improvement of our own social economic power. We have heard too much about white power and black power, so get ready to hear about street, street power. power. They borrow 30 big brooms and hit Market Street, one of the busiest streets in town. About 50 people gather with the brooms. As many of them sweep the blocks up Market near Compton's cafeteria, others carry signs saying, all trash is before the broom. And fall cleanup. This is a vanguard community project. These queers will not be swept away in another city-sanctioned cleanup. Vanguard is an organization of kids on the street who feel there is no place for them within the organizational structure of the homophile organizations. The homosexual movement will never be unified. This is an impossibility that is so obvious it seems ridiculous that it would even be mentioned. You must realize that 99% of the homosexual organizations in the U.S. are composed of and run by middle-class, well-established, hidden homosexuals. Vanguard magazine also says... Vanguard and one or two other organizations are composed of the other 1% of the homosexuals in the country. We are the hustlers who are bought and paid for by the same people who will not hire us to do a legitimate job. We are the people with long hair who you will neither hire to work for you nor allow us in your organizations. We are the young homosexuals, as young as 13 or 14, who are too damn young and confused to really know where else to go but to one of the well-known organizations. And when we go there, we are told, go to this institute or that psychiatrist. I'm sure that you all know that once one of these kids puts himself or herself in the hands of these professionals, the information is relayed to not only the person's parents and or relations, but to the police and other organizations, which now, with this information, will harass these people. My point is this. Let each and every organization understand what the goals of the whole movement are and go about reaching these goals in any possible way they may think will help. We are all in the same boat, and it's beginning to sink. We have got to start getting rid of all the masks and costumes that are weighing us down. When this is done, when we first admit to ourselves that we are homosexuals, and admit that we are the most prejudiced people about ourselves, then at this time, there will be a possible joining of forces. But I will say again, there will never be a unity of organization. Shortly after the sweep, surprisingly, the city of San Francisco designates a central city anti-poverty program office. A police liaison, recently appointed to the homophile community, Sergeant Elliot Blackstone, arrives at his office, takes his seat, and the door flies open. I demand that you do something for my people. 
Please read this. Louise Ergastras, a transgender resident, has dropped off a copy of Dr. Harry Benjamin's book, The Transsexual Phenomenon, on the officer's desk. Blackstone reads the book and, unlike most police officers, actually does something good for queer people. He begins educating local officers about how to interact with trans people, teaches them why these citizens don't need to be arrested for appearing to use the wrong restroom or for carrying ID with a different name. Blackstone sets out on a mission to end charges for cross-dressing in San Francisco. He sets up classes for trans people to learn clerical skills and find jobs outside of sex work if they want to. Soon after, Wendy Kohler, another patient of Dr. Benjamin's, organizes with the public health department to help the Tenderloin women with hormones, surgery, and other medical needs. Glide Memorial starts a support group. New ID cards become easier to access in San Francisco, which means trans people can start doing simple things they couldn't do before, like open bank accounts. And around this time, at John Hopkins University Medical School, the first United States sex change program opens, funded in part by that wealthy trans man with the pet leopard, Reed Erickson. The Daughters have titled this major event 10 Days in August, as our convention is not the only event in town this week. Across town, Phyllis Lyon greets the major San Francisco press outside the fourth convention of the Daughters of Belitis, August 20th, 1966. The North American Conference of Homophile Organizations will also be gathering, and Dr. Evelyn Hooker will join us for a speech. We expect the city of San Francisco to be filled with nationwide Mattachine members, members of the Council on Religion and the Homosexual, and SIR, and the Tavern Guild, which will be hosting a lovely fishing trip in addition to their other events. Most importantly, at the NACO meeting, for the first time, representatives from City Hall and the Police Department will sit down at a conference table with the members of the homophile community and allied civic organizations. It is expected that in this face-to-face -face confrontation, specific recommendations will be made to solve problems encountered by the homosexual minority in San Francisco. Thank you. While Phyllis and Dell are now inactive members with their own organization, the DOB, they're still running the local convention. On the Hour News Spots were broadcast on radio stations KEWB and KSFO. KDWB recorded two interviews with DOB members, one with Ms. Lyon about the convention and one with Del Martin and Bobby Deming about problems encountered by lesbians in our society. Ms. Lyon also appeared before the television cameras in a pre-convention news conference. Many homosexuals at this time justify staying in the closet still by thinking that the less visible homosexuals are to the public, the safer they are. But as activists like Phyllis Lyons stand in front of the cameras and proudly announce the movement's many successes, that argument loses strength. Public opinion is shifting. Homosexuals everywhere see the possibility of a less underground culture and queer life becoming more public.
DOB President Shirley Willer and her partner Marion Glass have begun opening new Belitis chapters in Boston, Cleveland, Philly, Phoenix, and Dallas. The successful president, Willer, opens the NACO meeting in San Francisco by asking homophiles from its many organizations to be as concerned about women's civil rights as male homosexuals' civil liberties. Here are some constructive steps. Homosexual men should value women as people. Don't treat them like showpieces. Actually give them responsibility. And consider our arguments at this convention. Be open to new avenues of in-depth communication. Shirley asks that the delegates from the homophile chapters discuss women's rights as part of gay rights. Her call mostly goes unanswered. As Barbara Giddings and Kay Tobin end their editorship of the latter to focus on civil rights cases in D.C., Dell and Phil cover again as acting editors of the Lesbian Magazine, and they thank Barbara Giddings for her work. She firmly established the latter as a little magazine with a big punch. And shortly after, Helen Sandoz takes over the latter. With this issue, the latter begins its second decade of publishing. Certain changes in editorial policy are anticipated. As President Shirley Willer pushes to focus on women's issues rather than exclusively gay issues, Helen Sandoz changes the latter's statement of purpose, removing all mentions of sexual variance. To date, emphasis has been on the lesbian's role in the homophile movement. Her identity as a woman in our society has not yet been explored in depth. It is often stated in explaining who is a lesbian that she is a human being first, a woman secondly, and a lesbian only thirdly. This third aspect has been expounded at length. Now it is time to step up the ladder to the second rung. The particular problems of the male homosexual include police harassment, unequal law enforcement, legal prescription of sexual practices, penalties for acts of questionable taste such as evolved from solicitations, washroom sex acts, and transsexual attire. In contrast, few women are subject to these penalties. The problems of importance to the lesbian are job security, career advancement, and family relationships. There's little evidence, however, that the male homosexual has any intention of making common cause with us. Though Dell included proud feminist statements in their first issue of the latter, the homophile movement as a whole has often pushed women aside. While men are more likely to be discriminated against by society as homosexuals, Lesbians are likely to be discriminated against by society as homosexuals and as women. Many lesbians feel an approaching tipping point in the feminist movement, and they're ready to focus the DOB in this new direction. Others, like Barbara and Kay, find that gay activism is most important to them. In Philly, other women launched the Homophile Action League after a bar raid, because they feel that all the daughters of Belitis ever do is send campaign literature, and they don't respond quickly enough to actual requests for gay legal help. Meanwhile, former DOB leaders Dell and Phyllis hear a radio broadcast about an organizer from the National Organization for Women. And soon after, they join now as a couple. Back at the NACO meeting in San Francisco, the new Mattachine Midwest from Chicago 
put a pin in them, motions to support the idea of a confederation of homophile organizations, an interconnected national league for all queer activists to work from a central goal. Mattachine likes this. The new vanguard group of young activists from San Francisco immediately declines, agreeing with Belitis leaders. Vanguard says, The various types of homosexuals are so far apart that a union of them would seem no less than a miracle. The debate goes on and on. But there is one thing all these queer folks can do together. On Sunday, a break from the conference, the Tavern Guild takes more than 600 of the convention's guests 40 miles east to a massive picnic outside the city. Sports and swimming and dancing and eating all day together. Some of the people there are surprised to see two members of another new organization, the Circle of Loving Companions. These two have long hair and beautiful flowing robes, almost medieval. They wear amulets in the shape of an erect penis. They are original Mattachine founder Harry Hay and his lover, John Burnside. If you don't know Harry's story, check out season one. Harry and John attended the conference, too, where someone suggested that all of the couples separate for the discussions in order to open up new conversations. Harry and John refused to sit separately. With all of us against them, those two won. John Burnside is an inventor of the telescope, a type of kaleidoscope. It's a fun little hit in this psychedelic era. Together, Harry and John attended BNs in the parks and sell their kaleidoscopes. They recently attended the Armed Forces Day protest in Los Angeles. They're always together, and they pop into homophile events. Del Martin says, This was a different type of Harry Hay that we had never seen before. One who was filled with the joy of life and love and spirituality, and one who could speak our language. He was a different character than we knew in the 50s. Harry and John will later help plan the first gay pride parades. They'll appear on TV and in documentaries together, and they'll co-found the Radical Fairies together. They'll remain together until their deaths, and their ashes will be mingled together and scattered in Nominus Fairy Sanctuary in Wolf Creek, Oregon. As for the movement Harry helped begin, a movement catalyzed by the firing of homosexuals from the State Department, the torch was picked up and is still carried by Frank Kameny, and now also Barbara Giddings. The pair has united as amateur attorneys representing an illustrator, Donald Crawford, fired because the Department of Defense revoked his security clearance. This came just a few months after young Donald Crawford picketed with the Mattachine at the Pentagon. At Crawford's hearing, Kameny makes a case against the Department of Defense for enforcing policies built on religious morality. It's unconstitutional. Crawford testifies that he is homosexual and will continue to be. So the DOD lawyers then call on their expert, someone Barbara and Frank have never heard of. Dr. Charles Saccharides. 
Socarides, like Irving Bieber, is beginning a career publishing books about the sickness of homosexuality. He testifies that homosexuality is a pathological condition capable of being cured by him. The DoD lawyers ask Socarides to read the definition of homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. See here? It says homosexuality is a mental illness. Socarides says homosexuality works like addiction, masculinity is the drug, and homosexuals crave it. It makes them reckless, untrustworthy. Kameny points out that the only homosexual Socarides knows are those who are miserable and check in as patients. They're not typical. Many of us like being queer. Thinking way ahead, Barbara Giddings has already asked several psychiatrists to send her letters confirming that gays can be trusted and are not sick. So, the next day at Crawford's hearing, Giddings holds up her 16 letters from psychiatrists across the country, including Wardell Pomeroy from the Kinsey Institute and Evelyn Hooker from UCLA, who ran that so-called fairy project back in season two. Socarides' theory is completely disproven then and there. Giddings and Kameny wait for the Department of Defense to make their decision on Crawford's security clearance. Ultimately, they will decide that because Crawford broke the sodomy law knowing it was illegal, he demonstrated poor judgment, which deems him untrustworthy. Security clearance denied. The government found its loophole. Kameny writes back, comparing this judgment of Crawford to the judgment of the Jews in Germany. Should they have realigned themselves with their government's values and somehow stopped being Jewish? Kameny and Giddings are furious. Bigotry against them continues on, a growing force, it seems, the more public they try to become, a force as large as the federal government and as seemingly small as a state fair. Following the 10 days in August homophile events in San Francisco, the Council on Religion and the Homosexual is banned from their own booth at the California State Fair. Too controversial, the fairground says. So, the council, the daughters, sir, and the tavern guild print 8,000 pamphlets titled Every Tenth Person is a Homosexual, and they hit the streets outside the state fair. They hand out the pamphlets to every person at the entrance. Tourists from all over the country learn about homosexuals directly from the source. The activists find that a message spreads quickly when you get out on the street. Okay, we'll be right back following this message. So far on my Patreon this season, we've taken dives into the gay coloring books of the 1960s and the homophile publications of Canada. We've heard the Walter Jenkins gay scandal in the White House and Randy Wicker discussing the erotic revolution. We're also going through some of Jose Saria's papers during his work with Sir and the Tavern Guild, and we're doing more 60s gay coloring books. Check out all this queer history and more along with the bonus podcast at patreon.com slash queer serial. 
It's a dollar a month to see all the research dives like these, or $3 a month if you want to include the bonus podcast from all three seasons, including the infamous crimes Boise Sex Panic series. Plus, there's books and buttons and mugs and more bonus stuff, but you can see all that stuff at patreon.com slash queer serial. There's a link in the episode notes. The newly opened Black Cat Bar in Los Angeles is packed with gays, including 15 or so drag queens who just arrived from a costume contest. Rhythm Queens, a trio of performers, are up on stage. Balloons and twinkling Christmas lights cover the ceiling. You know where the story's going. Nobody move, hands up! Minutes later, plainclothes police, who have been watching, raid the club. Snatching up pool cues and beating people. Officers drag homosexuals outside as the bar employees panic. A cop grabs the bartender and pulls them by the shoulders over the bar. The bartender cuts their face on broken glass. Everyone is running for the door. Another employee runs up to help the bartender and he's clubbed from behind and kneed. His bowels empty. A cop slams someone else against the jukebox and handcuffs them. In the street, The grinning cartoon black cat on the sign above the bar watches over the patrons running for cover down Sunset, scrambling into other bars, while cops hold down other black cat customers and beat them. Two people make it into the nearby bar, new faces, while two plainclothes officers chase after them. The shocked bar owner comes to the door, and she grabs her bartender for backup. The bartender asks the plainclothes cop to present some identification. The cop punches the bartender in the nose and breaks it. Then he pulls out his gun and says, This is all the identification I need. In the ensuing scuffle, the cop also hits the bar owner. She goes to the floor. Another employee coming up to help her is dragged by the officers into the street for a beating. After he's charged with a felony for assaulting a police officer, he's taken from the station to the hospital to remove his ruptured spleen. Ten minutes after it all began, 14 arrests, many of them drag queens, six charges of lewd conduct, two of which have to register as sex offenders, and many horrible injuries. Over the following week, the LAPD raids two more gay bars. They've been beating gays up and down Sunset and people of color in Watts and on the east side. Gay bars display large jars labeled Tavern Guild Legal Aid Fund to help people who were charged. They collectively raised $2,515. San Francisco's Tavern Guild also donates to the cause. But the L.A. Black Cat is forced to close down. Flyers are quickly dispersed through the other L.A. bars, encouraging gays to join the upcoming series of protests, 
on February 11, 1967, from Venice to East L.A. Crisis, the flyer announces. Police lawlessness must be stopped. A photo of police beating someone is printed in the middle. Because police lawlessness is not just a problem of the Sunset Strip, but a problem that exists throughout the city of Los Angeles, there will be simultaneous demonstrations in Silver Lake, Sunset and Hyperion, and Sunset Strip, Watts, East L.A., Pacoima, Venice. Arbitrary arrests, illegal search and seizure, police perjury in courts, entrapment, abuse of our rights and dignity must stop. Saturday, February 11th, 9 p.m. Blue fascism must go. Peace in Silver Lake! More than 200 protesters with picket signs show up at the demonstration, organized by Steve Ginsburg, founder of PRIDE, which stands for Personal Rights in Defense and Education. He encourages everyone to join in protest against the establishment war on minorities. Policemen line the streets. It's the largest gay protest yet. Steve's new organization, Pride, launches a newsletter under the same name. Jim Kepner from One is one of their first writers. The staff recreates their newsletter as a regional paper, printed secretly in the basement of the L.A. ABC television headquarters, where one of their writers works. Just a little corporate grant-taking. Pride renames their regional paper the Los Angeles Advocate, selling 500 copies at 25 cents each in the bars. Next year, as the Pride group can't stay afloat, two of the employees will pay $1 for ownership of the newsletter, and the year after that, they'll rename it simply The Advocate. Five years after that, they'll be printing 40,000 copies per issue. I can uh, state conclusively that uh, the problem is growing. For the police view of homosexuality, we talked to Inspector James Fisk of the Los Angeles Police Department. During the year of 1964, we arrested around 3,000 homosexuals who committed uh, their lewd acts in public places. March 7th, 1967, 10 p.m. Over the past two years or so, CBS Reports has been putting together a documentary called The Homosexuals. It's packed with cinema verite-style shots of hustlers working street corners and footage of the 1965 Echo Conference. Producing the special has been difficult because no sponsors will put their product in ad breaks between information about queers. The network decides to fill the time with public service announcements by the IRS and the Peace Corps. CBS News President Fred Friendly views the final product, and he loves it. He just has one question. He says, we don't have in what homosexuals do. For pure reportage, we have to put that on the air. Host of the special, Mike Wallace, who will soon start hosting the new CBS show 60 Minutes, he asks News President Fred Friendly, Fred, do you know what it is that homosexuals do? And Fred says, no, that's the point. I don't. Mike Wallace gently explains gay sex to Fred. And Fred says, well, maybe we don't have to put that on the air. 
Before that documentary goes to air, Fred Friendly resigns over CBS's refusal to air live coverage of the congressional hearings about the Vietnam War. When the incoming CBS News president, Richard Salant, sees the gay documentary, he cuts the thing to pieces. Salant thinks the episode favors homosexuality and sensationalizes it. His version of the documentary brings in far less favorable opinions. Here's more of the real audio. Chairman of the study, Dr. Irving Bieber, professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College. Dr. Bieber speaks about the roots of homosexuality. The fundamental framework is forged within the family between the parent-child relationship. A typical mother that falls in this group is a mother who establishes an overclose relationship with this son. She is generally overprotective, overfearful of his getting into injury, tends to play her part in isolating him from the peer group in the sense of these boys are not gentlemanly enough, they're not refined enough, they're roughnecks, and she tends to discourage subtly his participation in rough and tumble activity. She's over close, over intimate. She frequently prefers this son to her other children. He's generally the favorite child. She often prefers this son to her husband, explicitly and openly. Now, what is the role of the father during this time? The father, in typical instances, is detached from this son. Not from all his sons, but from this son. Spends little time with him. He not infrequently minimizes the son. He's contemptuous of him. Humiliates, is competitive with him and resents the position he's been put in by the mother, creating this coupling between the mother and this son. Well, say that the son has a close, binding, dominating mother. What can the father do to keep his son from developing a homosexual orientation? The father can do a great deal, and he can be the determining figure, even in the presence of this type of mother. If, first of all, he recognizes this is his son as much as it is his wife's son. He has a warm, affectionate, supportive relationship with his son, if he spends time with him, if he interferes with some of the activity that this mother is carrying out. I do not believe that it is possible to produce a homosexual if the father is a warm, good, supportive, constructive father to his son. Jack Nichols of the Washington Mattachine writes in their publication, The Homosexual Citizen. What is Bieberism? This doctor, Irving Bieber, has now been featured in the New York Times and the CBS doc claiming to have cured homosexuals. Bieber claims to have cured 27% of his patients, but he doesn't mention that his failure rate is 73%. His study is riddled with errors. Even if his research were to be true, examine the math. 18 of his cured homosexuals had 350 hours of therapy at a rate of $25. Multiply that by 15 million homosexuals and psychiatrists are sitting pretty. 
For good measure, CBS brings in a second so-called doctor, Charles Socarides. Homosexuality is in fact a mental illness which has reached epidemiological proportions. In 1948, Kinsey said that approximately 28% of adult males have had at one time or another one or more homosexual contacts. Dr. Charles Socarides is a New York psychoanalyst, a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine, here lecturing to a group of resident psychiatrists on homosexuality. They are taught that no man is born homosexual, that it is not genetic in origin, not the result of a hormone imbalance. Rather, they are told that sexual behavior is learned behavior. And many psychiatrists now believe that homosexuality begins to form in the first three years of life the result of early childhood experience. I was wondering if you think that there are any, quotes happy homosexuals for whom homosexuality would be, in a way, their best adjustment to life. The fact that somebody is homosexual, a true obligatory homosexual, uh, automatically rules out the possibility that he will remain happy for long, in my opinion. The stresses and strains the psychic apparatus is subjected to over the years will cause him, in time, I think, to have increasing difficulties. I think the uh, whole idea of saying the happy homosexual is to, uh, again, to create a, a mythology about the nature of homosexuality. What is it that drives a man into a homosexual relationship? The aim of the homosexual act, paradoxically enough, is to seek masculinity, achieving masculinity through identification with his partner. One thinks ordinarily that he is becoming feminine, but in fact, he is attempting to achieve the very thing that he felt he was so lacking in childhood. Simply because a, a person has a, a, a homosexual wish does not make him a homosexual or has a homosexual impulse or wonders what it would be like to have homosexual relations. And uh, uh, it's what we do that counts. The lady doth protest too much. Mike Nichols also interviews a few ashamed gay men sitting in shadows. One of them sits behind a large plant. You can only see his mouth and his voice is disguised. This man is 27, college educated. He was unable to hold a job because of his inability to contain his homosexual inclinations. He's been in jail three times for committing homosexual acts. If he is arrested once more, he faces the possibility of life in prison. He is now on probation and in psychotherapy. Uh, I had a very domineering mother, tyrant. That's a very sweet tyrant, but a tyrant nonetheless. It was a love that I had that was kind of killing. And I was a fat, child uh, was made fun of by other children. Uh, mother was going to have her way about how I dressed, how I acted, what I did, what I didn't do. A fairly curious child, but I had to restrain it. And I was afraid of her. I was scared to death of her. When did you first go into therapy? As soon as my parents uh, found out, they couldn't understand what they had done to uh, bring about such a turn of events, uh, uh, I felt superior. 
uh, I felt as though I had I had license to uh, satisfy uh, every need, every every desire, every tension. And this was just purely sexual adventure, sexual gratification. Yes. Uh, animal sexual gratification. Yes. We have been defined into sickness by the use of subjective and personal, moral and social value judgment, cloaked in the language of science. Frank Kameny writes to the Washington Post. As a scientist by training and profession, I can say that the treatment of the subject by Dr. Socarides and his colleagues is shabby, shoddy, slipshod, just plain bad science. He's especially furious after Socarides calls on the National Institute of Mental Health to start a center to rehabilitate gays. That's a call for national conversion therapy. I use the word sick. Uh, I'm not taking a pot shot. I'm not attempting to judge homosexuals. I'm not a judge. Uh, I know that inside now I'm sick. I'm not sick just sexually. I'm sick in a lot of ways. Uh, immature, childlike. And uh, the sex part of it is, is a symptom, like a stomach ache is a symptom of who knows what. There is an unfortunate tendency to consider psychiatrists as the authorities and experts on homosexuality. They are not. Homosexuality is not a psychiatric problem. It is a sociological problem in prejudice and discrimination against a minority group. We are people. We are not specimens or inanimate objects. Most homosexuals do not consider themselves ill, and they are able to live with their condition fairly comfortably. On the other hand, there are those whose compulsive behavior becomes a problem for the police. This is an example. This 19-year-old serviceman left his girlfriend on the beach to go to a men's room in a park nearby where he knew that he could find a homosexual contact. The men's room was under police surveillance. The only faces you will see are those of the arresting officers. Is anybody going to hear about this, like my parents? Your, your parents or, won't know of this, but uh, your company com commander will probably find out about it through routine channels. Oh, God. I'm, I mean, I can get kicked out for that. You could, yes. But, but, but the thing is that uh, for life, I'll, I'll be wrecked by this record, see? I'm, I mean, I'm only 19. And this this will ruin me. I, I couldn't take for anybody to know about this. You just told us that your girlfriend is down the beach. Right? She She's is. There. She's right down there now. She's down the beach this minute. Yes. And yet you're making a homosexual contact. I was, I was down here, What's yeah. your explanation for that? It's, it's not something I really need. Well, why didn't you think of this before you did? The average homosexual, if there be such, is promiscuous. His sex life, his love life, consists of a series of chance encounters at the clubs and bars he inhabits, and even on the streets of the city. The pickup, the one-night stand, these are characteristic of the homosexual relationship. He is not interested in nor capable of a lasting relationship like that of a heterosexual marriage. Maybe Mike Wallace should have interviewed Harry Hay and John Burnside, or Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. As for the organizations they founded, 
Mike Wallace says. There are numerous homosexual organizations across the country with a variety of names. Their membership is comparatively small, but their influence in the homosexual community is considerable. The head of the Mattachine Society in San Francisco is Hal Cole. In our view, the enforcement of laws which forbid public sexual behavior or overt demonstrations of affection and so on that lead to a sexual stimulus in public view, laws against that are appropriate and should be maintained. Readership for Hal Call's Mattachine Review has been dwindling. Since 1964, Pangraphic Press has only published 10 issues. The other magazine that was born out of Mattachine members, One Magazine, is also barely alive. Though Mattachine members remain in chapters nationwide, and One Incorporated has many other projects running successfully, both of their publications stopped printing in 1967, the year of the CBS stock. There are more effective forces at work in the chapters, as many of the activists hoped, and there are new ideas in other publications and on the streets. Most chapters in major cities have their own newsletter anyway, and their own set of local problems to focus on. For instance, Dick Leish of the New York Mattachine says, Stop whimpering and begin demanding. Homophile organizations must be radical. We must demand the right to cruise, the right to work, the right to public accommodations. Halkal and Dick Leish are both Mattachine, opposite coasts, often quite opposite points of view. Clark Pollock of the Janus Society in Philadelphia writes, The chief oppression faced by the homosexual is the cultural tone which says, I despise you. The few of the leaders in the movement have examined their innards sufficiently to be able to accept homosexuality in themselves and rid themselves of their own anti-homosexual sentiments. Anti-homosexuality is rampant within the organizations. Your publications reek with anti-homosexuality, groveling, obsequious, and seem almost designed to maintain the homosexual's position of inferiority. Even in organizations like the newly formed NACO, infighting keeps a lot of work from actually being done. Members like Randy Wicker find new ways to take action for queer liberation. He starts his button company, Underground Uplift Unlimited, selling buttons that say things like, More deviation, less population, and Make love, not war, and Lick dick in 68. Jack Nichols will later say, I think these buttons changed more minds than books did. Randy's counterculture messages are extremely popular. His buttons even get a mention in the Washington Post. With his profits, he legally changes his gay pseudonym, Randy Wicker, to his legal name. His buttons, spreading his messages, are worn coast to coast. In San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, 20,000 people join anti-war activists, and people like, of course, Allen Ginsberg, in a gathering of the tribes, where they celebrate peace and love in the park. Long hair, drugs, and the gender-bending influence of artists like Janis Joplin inspire this new generation. People who are activists simply by dressing against convention and challenging conformity in their daily lives. Meanwhile, Jack Nichols puts on his suit and tie to appear on Mike Wallace's CBS special. Jack is, of course, not the first gay activist to be interviewed on TV. A few have. 
He and Frank Kameny were on a DC talk show on which the host screamed at them until ending the program, Get off my stage, out of my studio, you vicious, perverted, lecherous people. You make me want to vomit. When Randy Wicker was recently booked on a show, Frank wrote to him. Dear Charlie. His former name. Barbara Giddings tells me that you're both going to be on the David Susskind show with Bieber. Congratulations and good luck. I and a lot of others that I know will never forgive you if you muff this one. It's becoming clear that it's nearly impossible to persuade the heteros to understand the gay cause on shows like these, because they're hosted by heterosexual cisgender white men. Speaking of, Frank writes to the producer of the CBS doc. Dear Mr. Morgan, Mr. Nichols indicated that you will have someone to discuss the homosexual mafia in the arts. I feel that this is a bit of sensationalism which can only degrade your presentation. The idea of a mafia implies conspiracy, organization, coordination of activity, direction, goals. I am sure that you see the similarity between the charges of a homosexual mafia and the charges of a... Jewish conspiracy, which one hears endlessly from anti-Semitic sources. Both charges are a discredit only to those making them and to those believing them. Sincerely yours, Franklin E. Kameny. Homosexuals are discriminated against in almost all fields of employment in all parts of the country. But in the world of the creative arts, they receive equal treatment. Indeed, some will say better treatment. There is even talk of a homosexual mafia in the arts dominating various fields. Theater, music, dance, fashion. Obviously, Frank's letter did not influence the producers. In painting, there is the commonly expressed notion that the homosexual's influence has been corrupting. That pop art, for example, is a trivial valorization that goes hand in hand with camp. Half hoax, half hostile. A means by which the homosexual, forced to live between two worlds, strikes back at an antagonistic society. In the fashion industry, many observers see an effort to blend the sexes, to defeminize woman, to replace curve and contour with sexless geometric sterility. Inevitably, these men are going to project an image onto women which is based on their own fantasies, their own imaginings. And since their view of women is charged with hostile feelings, since intuitively they want to carve woman into a shape that's somewhere between man and woman, a sort of uh, boy-woman, let's say, all of this is going to come through in their work. Now, it is notorious that the whole fashion industry, for example, uh, is dominated by homosexuals. And they are projecting onto women of their fantasies of the female. These fantasies are obviously infused with a great deal of hostility, and with an instinctive desire to convert the female into a form which is essentially a, a sort of neuter form, a form that is in between, a hybrid. We talked about all this with author playwright Gore Vidal, who thinks otherwise. There are those who suggest that there's a kind of a homosexual mafia in which the homosexual, mutually protective way, helps his fellows. Well, it's like most legends, I suppose. Uh, there may be some basis for it. Uh, I don't know how it would begin because, uh, you know, the artist is an artist first, and uh, he's a homosexual or a heterosexual second. 
But I have never seen any sign in any of the arts of, uh, of there being a, a hum and turn as alarmed editorialists like to write. You can get the effects of conspiracy without having a conspiracy if you just have all the people essentially in the same family. If you have a group like the homosexuals who are extremely clannish and who have a tradition of taking care of each other, who constitute a sort of uh, welfare state for each other, then you often get, without anybody intending any conspiracy, the same effect. I don't think that there is any greater incident of homosexual novelists, homosexual painters, homosexual musicians than there ever were. It is as natural to be homosexual as it is to be heterosexual. And the difference between a homosexual and a heterosexual is about the difference between somebody who has brown eyes and somebody who has blue eyes. Who says so? I say so. It is a completely natural act from the beginning of time. We have a sexual ethic which is the joke of the world. We are laughed at in every country of the world for our attitudes towards sex. The United States is living out some mad Protestant 19th century dream of human behavior. Instead of saying, aren't we wicked because we have a high divorce rate, or aren't we wicked because uh, men like to go to bed with men and women like to go to bed with women, why not begin by saying that our basic values are all wrong? The, the idea of marriage is, is obsolete in our society. Everybody knows it. There are natural monogamous. There are people who indeed enjoy one another's company. But can you imagine a man and a woman who are told that for 60 years they're going to have to live together and, and have sex only with one another? This is nonsense. Why not begin by accepting the fact what human beings really are, men and women? which is we are open. We have something that André Gide referred to as floating sensuality. We can be aroused by this, by that, not necessarily by men, not necessarily by women. So let us begin with the reality of human relations and not start talking about moral fiber because we're not living out this mad 19th century dream of that everybody, we must go in twos. One, one male, one female, and for 60 years in one another's company. This is, this is what's at fault. This is breaking down, and I think that the so-called breaking of the moral fiber of the country that these uh, commentators speak of is one of the healthiest things that's begun to happen. Jack Nichols arrives on set. Mike Wallace is noticeably nervous. During an interview with another gay man, Wallace was kneading his hands. Jack under his gay pseudonym, forced on him by his FBI agent father, he takes his seat as Warren Atkins to be interviewed by Mike Wallace. Standpoint and speaking of other people that I know, most, one of the innermost aspects of a person's personality is his sexual orientation. And I can't imagine myself giving this up, and I don't homosexuals or heterosexuals and giving that up. Warren Adkins is 28. He graduated from school in Washington, D., went to night school for three years, then spent a year drifting around the country. He's back in Washington working as a school registrar. For the last five years, he has been an active member of the Mattachine Society, a homosexual organization. What do you think caused your sexual orientation? And have you thought about it? I have thought about it, but uh, uh, it really doesn't concern me very much. I never 
uh, would imagine if I had blonde hair that I would w worry about what genes and what chromosomes caused my blonde hair. I, I feel no more guilt about my homosexuality or about my uh, sexual orientation than a person with blonde hair or with dark skin or with light skin uh, would feel about what they had. Did your parents know? Yes, uh, I told my parents myself when I was 14 years old. I feel uh, in many ways that I've uh, uh, been very lucky to have such a warm and understanding family. A blatant lie, you and I know, but he's trying to set an example for the 40 million people watching. They've, uh, they know about my homosexuality, they have accepted me as a person, and this I feel is very important. They don't think of me as some kind of creature. Uh, I had one friend who was beaten savagely by his father, and he beat him, in fact, with bricks. I was one of the lucky ones. My family uh, reacted, I think, very heroically and, and uh, humanely. Most homosexuals have had a chance to be heterosexual, would they? Well, I have a friend who took a poll of 300 people on that very question. Randy Wicker, Season 2, Episode 6. And he asked them, if you were able to take a pill to change yourself from a homosexual to a heterosexual, would and something like 95% of them answered no. When the cameras stop rolling, Mike Wallace tells Jack, you answered all of my questions to my satisfaction. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. But I really don't think you truly believe in your heart what you're saying to me. I think you know it's wrong. No, I know it's just fine. In your heart, you think it's wrong. Jack is livid. He stands up and walks off the set and out of the studio. Most Americans are repelled by the mere notion of homosexuality. The CBS News survey shows that two out of three Americans look upon homosexuals with disgust, discomfort, or fear. One out of ten says hatred. A vast majority believe that homosexuality is an illness. Only 10% say it is a crime. And yet, and here's the paradox. The majority of Americans favor legal punishment, even for homosexual acts performed in private between consenting adults. This program is far more impactful than the more enlightened and favorable San Francisco program, The Rejected, Season 2, Episode 11, if you're curious. This CBS program is broadcast nationwide, informing far more people than most journalists have so far. Both programs leave out lesbians and transgender people, though CBS does briefly mention bisexuals. Overall, the impact of the program is negative. The day after it airs, Jack Nichols is fired from his job as a sales manager at a hotel in Washington. And since they just broke up, Lige goes to San Francisco. Jack decides it's time for him to run again, too. This time to Manhattan to start fresh, working for Randy Wicker in his button shop. What about your work for the Mattachine Society? I promise I'll stay in touch, Frank. The homosexual, bitterly aware of his rejection, responds by going underground. They frequent their own clubs and bars and coffee houses where they can act out in the fashion that they want to, where they can escape the disapproving eye of the society that they call straight. The dilemma of the homosexual. Told by the medical profession he is sick. By the law that he is a criminal. 
shunned by employers, rejected by heterosexual society, incapable of a fulfilling relationship with a woman or, for that matter, with a man. At the center of his life, he remains anonymous, a displaced person, an outsider. Frank returns to his solitary work, preparing for next year's NACO conference in Chicago, writing letters to Dr. Hooker about test cases and to creditors defending himself, as he barely has $22. He writes to his friend, Bob Martin, at Columbia University. Was interested in the details of your exploits in Philadelphia, beyond what you told me by phone. Two at once. How? Explicit details, please. What is the stone wall at which you danced? No one knows exactly how many homosexuals there are in the United States. There's no reliable way to find out, for most of them are unwilling to acknowledge it. This much is certain. Male homosexuals in America number in the millions and their number is growing. They are attracted mostly to the anonymity that a big city gives them. New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco. The permissiveness and the variety of the city draw them. Tensions are at their highest in all of these cities, and one of them is about to finally strike back. When we return in two weeks, episode eight, Chicago ain't no sissy town. It seems to me today we're in the course of gradually rolling back from our former cultural values or cultural identifications to a more narcissistic, to a more self-indulgent, uh, to a more self-centered and essentially adolescent lifestyle. The homosexual thing cannot really be separated from a lot of other parallel phenomena in our society today. I mean, we see this on every hand. 40% of modern marriages end in divorce. We have a very widespread uh, uh, tendency to live lives of, of nonstop promiscuity. This is played up in a kind of playboy philosophy, which is celebrated and sugar-coated and offered to the masses and received with pleasure. We have all sorts of uh, fun and game approaches to sex. We have rampant exhibitionism today in every conceivable form. Uh, we have a sort of uh, masochistic, uh, sadistic vogue. We have a smut industry that grinds up millions of dollars worth of pornography a year. We have a sort of masturbatory dance style that's uh, embraced as if it were something uh, profoundly sexual, whereas actually all those dancers do is just grind away with, uh, without any consciousness of other people or their partners. And homosexuality is just one of a number of such things, all tending towards the subversion, towards the final erosion of our traditional cultural values. After all, when you're culturally bankrupt, one falls into the hands of receivers. Thanks so much for listening, my culturally bankrupt sluts. 
If you're enjoying Queer Serial, please give her a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That will help the podcast reach new listeners, and I appreciate it so much. Thank you. You can also follow the show at Queer Serial on Instagram to see real events and people from every episode, including clips from the CBS Reports documentary. Some of you might even recognize one clip from the documentary. Most people think that homosexuality is confined to major cities. It is not. In 1955, there were reports of a homosexual underworld in Boise, Idaho. Population at the time, 34,000. The people of Boise tried to stamp out homosexuality. They discovered it couldn't be done. In the learning process, everybody suffered. If you subscribe to my bonus podcast, you might recall that CBS covered the Boise sex panic in that documentary. It's a little crossover moment here. Go to patreon.com slash queer serial to listen to the Boise Sex Panic Limited series and learn a little more about the CBS documentary. Like Richard is the son's name. And he's like my age. Uh-huh. And so, you know, when I was coming out, I heard about me. I mean, I never liked about Charles. No, about Beaver and Sakharides. Uh-huh. You know, I would read about them, you know, when all the gay lib stuff was coming out, and then of course when the APA ended, you know, so forth. And then years later, I start running across the fact that Richard Sicardi's not only is gay, but was the gay liaison for President Clinton. Oh, my... Seriously? He's on TV all the time. That's incredible. He's like a couple of years younger than me. Did his dad live to see that? I don't know. Oh, I I've so. never heard him talk about that. Charles Sakharides, the quote-unquote doctor, worked his entire life to prove that homosexuals are sick until his death in 2005. He consistently blamed controlling mothers and weak fathers for causing gayness. But, Dr. Sokorides, are you strong enough to point that high-power perception at yourself? Charles Sokorides' son, Richard Sokorides, is gay. His son even went on to serve in the Clinton White House as senior advisor on gay and lesbian issues. And he was the founding president of Equality Matters. Also, Richard Sakharides' younger brother, Charles Jr., played Richard on the Queer History miniseries, When We Rise. And speaking of queer history and media, I highly recommend Susan Stryker's documentary, Screaming Queens. Stryker is the historian who rediscovered the Compton's Cafeteria riots. It's a fascinating story, especially to hear it from the perspective of the person who rediscovered it herself. Also, women who were in the riot are even interviewed in the documentary. They talk about working at Pinocchio's and working on the street, their lives after the riots, and how they got access to gender affirmation surgeries through Dr. Harry Benjamin. Also, one of the women in the riot became a Playboy bunny. You can also see the Compton's riot depicted in the new reboot of Tales of the City. Also, in 2017, the city of San Francisco designated the Compton's Transgender Cultural District, the world's first legally recognized transgender district. The building formerly occupied by Compton's Cafeteria is now a Federal Bureau of Prisons re-entry center run by private prison corporation Geo Group. Ugh, gross. In 2020, a group of volunteers painted in large letters on the block of Turk and Taylor, Black Trans Lives Matter. And one last thing, you can also visit the L.A. Black Cat. Even though it got shut down, it is still there. The building has housed many businesses since the original bar, but recently a restaurant opened there and revived the original name and the Black Cat logo. The walls display some of the flyers and photos discussed in this episode. Also, there's valet parking, and a review describes it as a hip upscale place. 
which I suppose is better than turning it into a private prison. Thanks to everyone who has donated to support production of the podcast and upcoming projects in the future in the works right now. If you want to support the show, go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash queercereal for lots of bonus content or head over to queercereal.com slash donate. Thank you. Also, thanks to the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Check out QueerSerial.com for more resources. Teachers, feel free to message me on any social media or email me at QueerSerial at gmail.com if you'd like transcripts of the episodes. Voice actors. Additional reporters in the mini-episode last week were played by Adrian Barker, Evan Camp, Faye Camp, Steve Camp, and Matt Camp. Hmm. It's a weird coincidence. In today's episode, Louise Ergestras was played by Jacqueline Keeling, cop at Compton's and the Black Cat by Mike Lysak. He's working a double. Compton's manager by Jen Freitag, Van Guardian by Olgi Fryer, Phyllis Lyon by Jane Sorenska, Barbara Giddings by Clarissa Janelle, Shirley Willer by Heidi Dove, Another Cop by Mike Kanish, Del Martin by Salvio Gatto, Helen Sandoz by Tino Munoz Pandaya, Protesters by Anne Marie Friedo and Maggie Smith. Jack Nichols by Nick Large, Frank Kameny by Albert Williams, Dick Leisch by Evan Kepnick, and Clark Pollock by Andrew Casey. The fabulous podcast art is by Ryan Teal. Some of the music you'll hear in this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0, but most of the music is from Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you in two weeks. Unless I drop another clue on Saturday. Seems to me that there are a lot of features of ordinary life which are enormously exaggerated in homosexual life. I mean, the kind of jealousy and rage and promiscuity that is just inherent in the homosexual life, where you cannot have marriage, really, and where you cannot have children, and where you don't have all the stabilizing influences, enables this writer, simply by writing out of his own truth, his own experience, to enormously distort and intensify features that we recognize are inherent in, in our lives, too. Uh, there's a theory which one reads all the time about how a certain uh, successful playwright, in a very successful play, uh, describes married people as uh, heterosexuals as being wicked and vicious and clawing at each other. And this is supposed to be really a story about uh, two homosexual couples. Well, homosexuals are... <laughs> there are wicked homosexuals and they're wicked heterosexuals. And uh, this is a playwright who deals in, uh, ex you know, in savage and extreme situations. And I don't see any of it as being translatable, particularly, as, as a heterosexual as a homosexual situation posing as heterosexual. And furthermore, if it were, then why is it popular? Obviously, it's popular because what he has to say about married couples uh, speaks to everybody. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a certain homosexual playwright who has written the only really good women characters in the American theater written by him. So the idea that the homosexual in some way is a seditious person trying to, uh, uh, to absolutely destroy the family structure of the United States, nonsense.